The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. So if you've been with us for the past year, you know that uh, we have been preaching through uh, the book of Luke. And our sermon series is called Feast for Failures, all right? So if we haven't mentioned that lately, I wanted to mention it. And so remember, the, the setting and occasion of the book of Luke, um, the purpose of Luke's gospel is that he's writing to a friend called Theophilus, all right? And so he's writing to his friend Theophilus so that he can have certainty, so that his friend can have certainty in the things he has been taught, And such is our purpose today, and such is our purpose throughout the last year, Uh, and in the coming year as we finish the book of Luke. uh, Our purpose is, in working our way through this sermon series and the book of Luke, is that you and I, you and I, may have certainty, that we may be certain that Jesus is who he says he is, and that by receiving him as Savior through faith, we can be certain He will save us and give us life. Not just here, but also, most importantly, eternal life. And so it's good news uh, this morning that God wants us to be certain of who Jesus is and that we can be saved and redeemed uh, through faith in him. That's good news today. Uh, God did not leave us alone. He did not wind up the universe and let it go and then just stayed out of touch. He left us his word. And so he left us the book of Luke, uh, once again, a letter that Luke is writing to his dear friend so he can be certain. And uh, that's why we're here today, so we can be certain of who Jesus is and that we can be saved through him, okay? So today, as you heard earlier from Levi, today's passage is Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 10 through 21. So we're going to stay right there. So if you uh, get us your Bibles again, uh, we'll be looking through there, uh, basically verse by verse this morning. And as has been the case in much of Luke, uh, we find Jesus uh, in this passage of Scripture. We find Jesus in another town uh, on his way towards Jerusalem, all right? He is going, he's on a road going towards Jerusalem. He's stopping town by town. And as he does, uh, he stops at a synagogue. And that's where we find ourselves today. So on his way towards Jerusalem, attending and teaching just about every Sabbath, at a local synagogue. Uh, Luke says this was, is as his custom. This is what Jesus would normally do uh, each and every week. And in other words, Jesus, for our purposes, Jesus went to church each week, like you and me. He went to church each week to teach and to preach about himself and how he is ushering in God's kingdom. So just as verse 10 says, look at verse 10 with me. It says, now, once again, as was his custom, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, before we get into any more, a little little side note, uh, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's so important for us to follow Christ's example of gathering together uh, on a regular basis. It doesn't have to be every Sunday. You're not earning God's approval uh, by coming to church. But boy, it's so important for us to be hearing the gospel every Sunday, or at least on a regular basis. Um, God does not need your church attendance. He does not need my church attendance. Nor does he look at your church attendance and then love you more or love you less based on that church attendance. 
He's not the one in need here. Uh, We are the ones in need of him. And we need to be here just like we need to be in community with one another. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in regular reading in the Bible. Uh, Once again, it doesn't have to be every day or every Sunday, but just regular. Uh, Because these are the means. Coming to church, being together, fellowshipping together, hearing the gospel preached, being in community groups with one another throughout the week, regular prayer and Bible studies, things like reading your Bible. These are the means by which we grow in faith and life in him. So, little pastor side note there. But with that said, going back to the text, it was just an average church day for Jesus. Jesus teaching as usual in just another local synagogue until we get to verse 11. And then Luke says, and behold. Do you see that? Look at verse 11 with me. He says, and behold. And so now before we move on to anything else, we need to pause for a moment because that is what Luke would have us do in saying the word behold. Why? Because of this word behold, if you're just reading through the passage, you could miss what Luke is trying to say. You could miss the pause based on the translation you're reading or because you're just merely reading through the book of Luke, not really thinking. But Luke uses this word to stop us in our tracks, to get our attention, and to look at what Jesus is about to say and do. Actually, this word behold literally means look with emphasis, almost like an exclamation point. So church, let's read it again knowing this. Uh, Now, uh, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. That's where we were. And look, this is what Luke is trying to say, at what Jesus said and did. Look, verse 11, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, when you read woman, it's not like caveman Western PA kind of stuff. It's not like woman, you know. It's it's more of a compassionate term. It's like saying, like we would say maybe ma'am, but different than that. But it's not woman, it's it's woman. You are freed from your disability. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Look, and with one word, look, takes the spotlight off of Jesus for a moment and puts it on the disabled woman. Why? Because with all of the people in the room, much like today, regular Sunday, at church, because with all the people in the room there to see Jesus, Jesus sees someone else. As his gaze looks around a crowded room, it rests on one woman, a woman disabled, hunched over for 18 years, utterly unable to help herself, who had come to church that day thinking, regular Sunday church, or Saturday church in their case, thinking, maybe he'll help me. Maybe someone will help me. But in particular, maybe this guy that I've heard about doing miracles all over the region, maybe he's the answer. 
Maybe he's my hope. Maybe he is the one, the only one that can help me. I'm at the end of myself and everyone else around me. He may be my last and only hope for help and for healing. Think about it. Hunched over for 18 years. Have you seen people like this? I've seen people like this. Is that why you're here today? Have you come in maybe not a physical disability, but maybe on the inside thinking, you know what? Jesus, you may be my only hope. Is that why we come to church today? Because I'm here to tell you, church, that we're all needy like that. When we come to church, it is worship, it is celebration, but it's also coming to church in our need to say, Jesus, you, the week that I've had, you're my only help. You're my only hope. This is why this woman was going to church that day. Maybe he is the answer. So is that why you're here today? Or is this just another day at church? That's fine. But this passage today points you to a greater reality of your need and my need for Christ. So Jesus, what he does is he sees her, he calls her over, and as he lays his hands on her, he says to her, woman, you are freed for your disability. And immediately she is healed. Church, what a picture this is for you and me. Church, what a picture this is of you and me. <laughs> An average insignificant, disabled woman in an average, insignificant town in a church somewhere on a dirt road to Jerusalem. This is the setting. This is what's happening. And just another day at church, right? No. Luke says, look. Look closer. See who Jesus is. See what he has done. He sees her, calls her, and says, woman, you are freed. You know, this passage is full of words with deep meaning in the original language they were written in. And I'm not some big Bible scholar. I use people, especially your app that you sent me. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, this passage is full of words with deep meaning. When it says that Jesus sees her, it literally means that when he saw her with his eyes, catch this, and fully understood her with his heart, he was moved with compassion. That's what that word sees means. He not just saw her physically, he saw her with his heart and was moved with compassion to the point of stopping whatever was happening in the room and he healed her immediately. Church, this is the heart of your Savior for you. You may or may not be disabled on the outside. But church, all of us are definitely spiritually disabled on the inside with no hope of helping or healing ourselves. And it's actually worse than that. The Bible says that we are born spiritually dead, not just merely disabled. But church, here's the good news. There's always a but God 
when there's bad news and good news. The bad news is what I just said, but God, and here's the good news. God saw you in your deadness. He saw you with his eyes, with his heart, and he was moved with compassion towards you. To the point of coming to you, sending his son for you, living a perfect life in your place, sacrificing himself on the cross in your place and being raised to give you spiritual life through faith alone, in Christ alone. I remember, um, this is for Scott because he'll be listening to this recording later. <laughs> I was saved, what day? March 7th, There you go, Scott. <laughs> um, so think, think with me the day that the Lord saved you. My was March 7th, 1987. It's, it's kind of a, if you're new to us, it's kind of a joke now. So it's, that's it. But think about all that the Lord has done for you. Think about the day that you were saved. Think about maybe it was, you know, one day your eyes were open. Maybe it was a little bit over time. But think about it. You know, I remember that day, and by the way, may we never <laughs> grow cold or numb to this, but I remember it was just uh, average Sunday, actually it was a Saturday night I think, youth ministry, but an average service. I'm sitting there, uh, Baptist Church down in Texas, and, and uh this guy preaches the gospel. And my eyes were opened. And I, I didn't know anything. All I knew is that whatever that man said, that I was lost and that I was born spiritually dead, all those things that I didn't know at the time, but what I heard, my eyes were open to Jesus being my only help, my only hope. So when I think about that day, even though we joke about it now, I, I think about God seeing me and being moved with compassion towards me. Worse than the disabled woman. And he gave me faith to see. Changed my heart, changed my life. It's never been the same. This is what we're talking about. This is your Savior. His heart is for you. So not only does he give you spiritual life, but as you put your faith in Christ and look to him as your only hope for salvation, he also frees you from the bondage of Satan. So look at your maps today. Hopefully you got one of these. And I'm going to take a quick drink. So it says the first point is Jesus not only gives us spiritual life, but frees us from the power of Satan. When I first made this, I, I really should have used slavery, <laughs> enslaved. So if you want to, I mean, right next to power or power of Satan, uh, probably more specifically to this passage, it is, it is slavery. It's in, 
It's imprisonment. It's bondage to Satan. So not only does he give you spiritual life, not only did he give me life back then, but he also freed me, released me from the bondage that I was under, the imprisonment that I was under, the power of Satan. And so not only does he, he, do, he give you life, he gives you faith, he gives you himself, but he frees you. He frees you from sin. He frees you from spiritual death. He frees you from your enemy, the enemy of your soul. So where is this in the text? Let's look at the scriptures again together. Not only, once again, was Jesus moved with compassion towards the woman. Not only did he heal her disability, but when he says to her, woman, you are freed, he uses a word that literally means you're, you are released from prison. You are no longer enslaved. But released from whom? Because this disability, even though it was attributed, if you look at the text, it's attributed to spiritual oppression, the bondage of Satan. The meaning also has a, a legal or relational aspect to it, much like a, a divorce, like a legal divorce. So for example, and to put this in my own words, it, it's like, it's like Jesus releasing this woman from the enslavement of an abusive relationship. Physically abusive, emotionally abusive, spiritually abusive, and legally. He releases the legal, the legality of that relationship. He, it's, it's a thorough, it's not just, being, not just being freed from your disability. It's like saying the gates are open. You are released from your prison. You were released from this abusive relationship. I cause a divorce to happen because you were married to Satan. Now you are married to me, so to speak. The whole person was released from any power or bondage of Satan any power that Satan had over her, she was freed from. Now, a little side note here. This is not an exorcism. This is a healing, okay? Uh, this is also not prescriptive, but descriptive, meaning um, not all disabilities are from satanic oppression, okay? This is describing a very unique situation in this town, in this synagogue. And the, the problem is that we, we, sometimes we make this prescriptive and say all disabilities are, the, are because of the oppression of Satan. That's just not the case. The problem is that we take a passage like this. Many pastors and churches take a, a situation like this and they generalize it to everyone, everywhere, for all time. And that's just not the case. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of that, but if you have questions about that at some point, I'm sure Pastor Scott or myself, we can get together and we can answer those questions. But just know now that this situation is very unique to this woman. It's very unique to this situation in time. It's, it describes what's happening. It doesn't prescribe, if that makes sense. So even though the woman's physical healing is descriptive and unique to that situation, even though that's unique, we are all born spiritually enslaved. That's not descriptive. That is prescriptive. Whenever we were born, we were born spiritually dead and spiritually enslaved. Utterly, 
Let me just emphasize that word. Utterly unable to help ourselves. But like the woman, God sees us. He calls out to us. And he frees us from our spiritual captivity to Satan. Once again, the words, but God. (laughs) That is great news for you and for me. Because we're born into the bad news, but God brings us good news through Christ. But God is great news for we who need to receive spiritual life and freedom from someone outside of ourselves. You can't do it. You're utterly unable to save yourself. There's nothing within you. Nothing. Salvation comes from the outside, from Jesus himself. It's, there's just nothing you can do. Utterly unable to help yourself. That's why God sent Christ. So that he would live the perfect life for you, die in your place on the cross for you, be raised again for you. And not only that, he gives you the faith to trust Christ. Imagine being enslaved and dead with me. Imagine, I don't know why, uh, what's the show? Uh, Walking Dead, right? The Walking Dead. Uh, The Walking Dead comes in my brain every time I think this thought of being enslaved and dead. I think of that one season where uh, they're all held up in a prison or a jail or something like that. and, And there's just, there's, they are utterly unable to help themselves. I mean, you know, all the walking dead are coming around, rah, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but, I mean, I think about these folks that are dying and enslaved and have no hope. Um, think about it. I mean, when you were born, you were born spiritually dead in a jail cell, we'll say. <laughs> Does that make sense? Imagine that. There's nothing you can do. Not only are you dead, but, now, but you're also enslaved. It's a double whammy. <laughs> but then God sees you, is moved with compassion towards you, calls out to you, lays his hand on you, and says, you're freed. Amen. But, as always, there's always a religious hater in the crowd, right? Uh, so look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14 says, but, this is not but God, this is, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant. And when you see that word indignant, that is righteously indignant, okay? So he is, he's ticked off because he thinks he's, you know, I'm the ruler. I know the laws. And Jesus, you're not obeying the law. And you people, you're not obeying the law either. So this is righteous anger, righteous indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and said to the people, the ruler says to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Can you just kind of hear the arrogance? There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. I mean, really? You mean there are business hours when it comes to healing? Well, if you're new to the Bible, then all you need to know to understand what's happening in this situation is that this guy is the head honcho of the synagogue. He's the grand poopaw. He's the big guy, 
right? And it's his job to make sure everyone is obeying the religious laws of the time. That's his job. What a great job that is. Gosh. One of those laws is to keep the Sabbath holy. This means no working. You do not work on the Sabbath. And actually, even today, I was in Israel in Jerusalem several years back, and this guy was telling me, a Protestant guy, Christian, was telling me of some of his friends that are still trying to keep that Sabbath holy by not working, okay? And it was a very, very hot summer, okay? And his family was roasting inside of, I don't know, his apartment or house or what it, what it was. And one of the person in his family got up to flip the switch on to the air conditioner, and the dad said, no, sit down. That's work. Yes, it's, right? Um, But this is where religion leads you. This is where it goes. And this is what this guy is talking about. He's saying, "You you can't heal on the Sabbath. That's work. You're working. You're doing something. Plus, I mean, obviously he doesn't like or respect Jesus because Jesus keeps on poking holes and also poking them in the eye, okay, when it comes to their extra or non-biblical religious laws. And he calls them out on it too. I mean, look at verse 15. The Lord answers him, he says, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? (laughs) And not this woman, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? (laughs) You hypocrites. Notice that the ruler doesn't really direct his or address Jesus directly, right? So, so there's the woman, Jesus calls her over, he heals her, be freed woman, okay? And then the, the ruler steps forward, prob- maybe just right next to Jesus, and without even talking to Jesus, arrogantly says what he said. It's a passive-aggressive <laughs> way of addressing the crowd to get them to do what he thinks they should do. But Jesus definitely (laughs) addressed the ruler. There was no passive aggressiveness with Jesus. He said, you hypocrite. Also notice, he doesn't say, catch this, he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say that honoring the Sabbath is hypocritical. He's not trying to get rid of the law. He's trying to turn it on its head. So he doesn't say that Honoring the Sabbath is hypocritical. It's that the religious leaders are hypocritical in using the Sabbath and he, for two reasons. Here are two reasons why Jesus calls them hypocritical. Because they work on the Sabbath. They untie their stupid donkeys <laughs> to give them water, which they should. We don't want our donkeys to die. And they place a higher value on keeping the laws rather than the people in need. This ruler of the synagogue is a lot like the barren fig tree from the passage last week. Remember, if you were here last week, Jesus talks about there's no fruit, cut it down. This is an example of that. It's it's not by coincidence that Luke puts this story right here. Because this... This ruler of this synagogue, he is like the barren tree with no fruit. 
oh, he looks like a tree, right? But he's not a tree because he's not producing fruit. So cut it down. So Jesus uses what is called lesser to greater logic. So if you're looking at how to read your Bible better, okay, for all of its worth, there's a logic and an argument that Jesus is using. He says this. Here it is in a nutshell. If you, the ruler of the synagogue, you hypocrites, if you untie your donkey in a manger to give it life, which you should, how much more value is it to release someone made in God's image? A human being. One of God's chosen people from the bondage of Satan to give them life, real life, living water. Not just a little bit of physical water, but living water. So there's the lesser to greater argument. Isn't she of more value than your stupid donkey? And as he said these things, you know, it's, it's obvious what's going to happen, I think. But look at verse 17. As he says these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame and the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So notice the two reactions to Jesus. The religious folks put to shame. Average folks rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? Because they realize this lady, we all have needs that he's meeting. And he has come to meet our needs. So they, re, they glorify God and they worship. Both need, hear this, before we just start jumping on this religious guy and saying, you know, he's the bad guy of the story, which he kind of is, right? Um, both need spiritual sight. Both are sinners. It's like the prodigal son. You've got the righteous brother and you have the prodigal son. Both of them need the father's love. Both of them need to see their need. But Jesus employs two different strategies to helping them see. With religious folks, hypocrites. He goes at their religious pride every single time. Because religious folk need help to see their need for him. And the average folk who recognize their need need to see that Jesus is who he says he is. The one who not only meets their greatest physical need, but most importantly, their greatest spiritual need. Both of them need the Savior. But to do so, Jesus addresses religious pride in some folks differently. And sometimes it causes shame. And he addresses the greatest needs in others, which causes them to rejoice and to worship. But both need spiritual freedom. Look at point number two in your map. Many of us need freed from religion. It is the same for us today. Which one are you? The religious person who is, I've been there before, so I'm not going to just stand up here and say, you know, nanny nanny boo boo. I'm not going to finish that. I've been there. I've been that religious guy. And Jesus has come to me and he says, don't be a hypocrite. You're in as much need as the, this average person who is, will say, 
disabled. So which one are you? Which one am I? That's, I think that's a great question. The difference between the two is that religion puts law, listen to this, I'd, I'd put this as like a little second part to your point number two. Once I can find it again. Oh, hold on. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's worth trying to find. Ah, there it is. Woo, yes. Thank you, Lord. All right. The difference between the two is that religion puts law above love for others. That is, by definition, what it is. To be religious is when you put law above love for others. Both need the great physician to heal the gaping wound spiritual wound on them, both need released from the prison of pride. But here's the main difference. One sees more of their need than the other. Do you think the religious ruler in the synagogue saw his need? He did not see a need. But the lady who comes, the disabled woman who comes in her need and says, you may be my only help and hope, she sees her need. She sees the gaping wound physically, but Jesus opens her eyes because he's moved with compassion. He opens her eyes to see that she has a spiritual wound, gaping wound. Both need healing. Both need release from the prison of pride, sin and Satan. Both of them need to be freed from prison. But can you imagine the religious leader, at least the woman sees her disability. I mean, it's, it's physical, right? But then Jesus opens her eyes to the spiritual. The, guy, the ruler has a, a spiritual, we'll just say, gaping spiritual wound, and yet he's not looking at that. He's saying, don't pay attention to that. Just look at this. Look at what the right hand's doing. But the left hand, is gangrene, spiritually dead. This is what religion does to us. It blinds us to the left hand, if you will. And we, all we do is look here and we, we tell everybody else, hey, look like me. And then, but don't look at that. That's what religion does to us. It blinds us. I remember those, even after I got saved, I remember being like that. And then God just very forcefully but gently as well showed me my pride, my spiritual pride. And I went, oh, <laughs> oh, that's not good. I'm in as much need of you as anyone else. So when Christ sets you free, church, you are free indeed. Some of you here this morning got saved in a blaze of glory. <laughs> Jesus saw you, freed you, and you've never looked back so to speak. Maybe like the disabled woman, right? Jesus healed you on an average Sunday or whatever it may be. But with others, hear me this morning, let me see your eyes. Jesus saw you, freed you, and your faith has been like a little plant growing under a sidewalk, pushing its way to the surface through a little crack in that sidewalk to receive water and light 
gosh, you are as saved as I am. Yes, struggling your faith up and down throughout life. And even though it's been hard, and you, you, you've, you've broken the surface of that sidewalk, God has caused you to do that. And by God's grace, Jesus was stronger than that sidewalk. And your little faith continues to grow. Praise the Lord. Either way, he gets it done. You see, most of us have the faith and experience of the little plant. That's where most of us are. And we see ourselves as small, insignificant, growing bit by bit, sometimes stunted in our faith, sometimes growing leaps and bounds. But over time, God continues to be faithful because he is faithful. So church, here's a promise for you. Philippians 1.6 says this. Here's a, this is a blood-bought gospel promise for you. If you're that little plant, I feel like a little plant right now. <laughs> this is your promise. It says, and I'm sure of this, this is Bible, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And here's another. Let's look at our text today. Verse 18. He said, therefore, this is Jesus, he says, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Is it it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And then again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now you may be looking at that passage going, what the heck is he talking about? So let's just unpack these two verses real quick, or a few verses. They're, they're both similes. The kingdom of God is like, okay? The kingdom of God is like. So let's first talk about what the kingdom of God is. So if you're taking notes this morning, the kingdom of God is Jesus. Jesus says, in your presence, you, the kingdom of God has come near with me standing right here. But the kingdom of God is also his gospel of grace that goes out. It's Jesus and the gospel that goes out to save folks. And so what we need to know, what you and I need to know about this passage in particular, don't try to figure out all the, the, you know, the flour and all that kind of stuff. What we need to know about, it's the mustard seed and the leaven that I want to point your attention to. And what we need to know about the mustard seed and the leaven is that even though they're really small amounts, the mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds, okay? There's a lot of flour, okay? in what they're talking about, just a little bit of leaven, okay? Even though they're really small and insignificant at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, they're huge by the end of time. That's what it's trying to say. To the point that the, the kingdom becomes, look at that verse again, it becomes a home for sinners. 
The mustard seeds planted in a garden. By the way, some scholars think that that's a little poke in the eye of our religious leaders again. Because it is actually not in the Bible, but it's in their law that you can't plant a mustard seed in the garden. You plant mustard seeds in a field. That's what you're supposed to do. Okay? So I don't know how true that is, but one of the scholars I read in preparing said, yeah, that's probably another poke in the eye. All right? That's, just what, that's what Jesus does, and I love it. So where was I? Uh, yeah. So the mustard seed is planted at the beginning, and by the end, it's one of the biggest trees to the point where the branches are out and birds are resting on it. Some scholars think that birds means the Gentiles, means you and me. So that through Jesus, the root, what comes up are branches, and even you and I get a chance to rest and come home to Jesus. Don't want to push that too far, but that's what some people say. So once again, to the point where the kingdom becomes a home for sinners, where there's plenty of spiritual life to go around. That's the bread piece. So you plant a mustard seed, it grows, and by the end, um, a lot of people are saved and find home and rest in its branches. Then with the flour, you put a little bit of leaven. Guess what? That leaven's going to go through the whole loaves of bread to the point where if you need spiritual bread, you're going to get it because there's plenty of it. That's what these several verses mean. But that's not what the religious leaders and others expected of Jesus in the kingdom. They, they, once, they expected Jesus to come and the, or the Messiah to come. And even today, who would burst on the scene in a blaze of glory and make much of them, defeating their enemies with the sword. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The kingdom is like a little mustard seed. It's like a little leaven. It's like the healing of a disabled woman. That's why these passages are connected. It's like a little, it's like the healing of a disa- little disabled woman on an average Sunday. That's what the kingdom is like. Yes, the healing of a disabled woman on an average Sunday at an average church somewhere on a dirt road to Jerusalem. That's what the kingdom is like. It may look small, but Jesus says, just wait. So do you see your spiritual life and faith as small and insignificant? Always struggling? Are you growing impatient with the small increments of growth in you and maybe the church? Well, I want you to know Jesus sees something different. He lifts our gaze. This is beautiful. He lifts our gaze from our small perspective and says, be of good courage, have hope, look to me, the author and finisher of your faith, and know that I've got everything in control, that I love you, oh, he loves you, church, and will help you finish the race of faith. He says, I have a plan for you. I have a plan for the church. And it may look small, but just wait. Scott threw out a, a verse last week, 2 Peter 3.9, which is another wonderful promise. It says, the Lord, if you're a little plant this morning, struggling, but your faith is there, 
I want you to know that he, here's another verse that just came in my mind because it's been a very, uh, I've been re- struggling with a lot of uh, anxiety and depression as of late. And the beautiful thing, by the way, Christians have anxiety and depression. So that's another sermon for another day. Um, <laughs> but one of the verses that he keeps reminding me of is that a, um, a bruised reed, you know, like a little plant, a bruised reed that's been hit by the storms, Jesus will not break it. Um, he also says that a smoldering wick, this is part of that same verse, it's like a little candle that's just barely burning. The verse says, he will not quench it. Um, beautiful promise that I'm holding on to. But then 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I know that some of you here are seeking rest and life for your weary souls because I'm a pastor here and I know some stories uh, because you've shared them. So can I invite you to come home to Jesus? The branches. (laughs) The one who sees you, knows you, loves you, and calls out to you to give you spiritual freedom and bread. He calls out to give himself to you, the bread of life. There's the leaven piece. Christian, are you weary today? Do you wonder if God still hears your prayers and is still working in your life? Does does your faith feel small and insignificant? Well, church, I've got good news for you. It is no small thing, and I'm preaching this to myself right now. It is no small thing that Jesus has freed you from the clutches of sin and Satan. It is no small thing that your names are written in heaven. It is no small thing that he gave you spiritual life. It is no small thing that he continues to free you from religion. What may seem small is actually miraculous. So, to give you one last gospel promise. I'm not going to read, I'm just going to give you the where to find it. When you have time, look at Romans 8 verses 18 through 39. Romans 8, 18 through 39. And let, this is what you're going to find there. (laughs) You're going to find a treasure trove of truth in the future promises of God for you. And as you let that just kind of wash over you, so to speak, God's going to give you hope. There's no doubt about it. So let's pray. Uh, So Father, we are just so thankful that you've not left us alone. 
that you see us, you call out to us, you heal us. You, I mean, we could just go on and on and on. So we're thankful today for you. Would you continue to, by your grace, by your spirit, through your word, would you continue to work in our hearts as we leave this place today? For your glory, for our joy, because you are for us and not against us but also for the love of our city. Would you do a wonderful work in us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples, who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.